Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking about the meat industry. Protein demand has continued to go up inexorably across the globe as population grows and more people reach the middle class and the sectors become increasingly industrialized as a result. 70% of the cost of raising livestock is their nutrition, and 70% of that are the commodities like grains that go into it. What is the structure of the industry, and what are the major challenges it faces today, from rising feed prices, inflation, disease, and a changing and shifting political landscape? Our guest is Chris Chavis. Chris leads performance solutions for animal nutrition at DSM, a global health and nutrition company. Chris has had a career in leadership across animal nutrition and agriculture. Please do leave a positive review or give us five stars on the platform you're listening on. It really helps to grow the audience and thus support the show. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to have the conversation. We're talking about essentially the meat industry, which is half an agricultural industry and half a an industrial industry, but it faces many challenges as well as continuing growing demand globally for those proteins. Before we talk about sort of the opportunities and the challenges that face the industry, can you just get us all on the same page? I appreciate it's probably quite a new industry to talk about for some of our audience. So can you just help us understand you know, what we mean by the meat industry and, and roughly speaking, the broad market structure? Well, the animal protein industry, as is varied as the species that comprise it, you know, from chickens to pigs to sheep to beef, dairy cattle, there are quite a few differences within and among the species. And all these species will find many generational family farms, as well as farms that have grown in scale and through consolidation. There's a gross oversimplification would be that the smaller the animal, the more vertically integrated the industry has become, meaning broiler chickens and layers would be vastly more consolidated than beef or the dairy industry. Some call it industrialization, yet I would prefer the term more professionalization as the scale has allowed investments in research into optimal health and nutrition, allowing most of us as consumers to be able to purchase affordable, high quality animal proteins. It's no easy way to define this industry because it is that half agriculture and half, you know, industrial processing. Can you just roughly speaking in the Western world, industrialized world, how does meat get to our table, irrespective of whether it's swine, poultry or, or beef? In general, the same process is followed for all of those species, right? So the, the animal producer would be procuring grain um, or Actually, the feed mill that they're buying their feed from would procure the grain, um, formulating that into diets, feeding the animals to the various life stages. In some cases, they may own the animal from birth to harvest. In other cases, they may specialize in a particular life stage, such as raising nursery pigs and then, and then selling them and transitioning, transferring ownership somewhere else. Um, but in the end, then um, they're then harvested at the packing plant and then sold to retail. Thanks for that. Can you give us, I guess, the setup of the, the animal nutrition world, which is at the heart of the story we're telling today, and, and how that is set up? You know, is it, 
Are these meat packers vertically integrated? What goes into animal feed? I mean, that's a, it's a, that, that is a huge segment of this industry. And as I said at the start, you know, is, is the significant component that goes into, into raising livestock. Yeah, indeed. Let, let's start with the grain itself. So typically you would have grain farmers that are producing corn and soybeans, the two major commodities that go into animal feed diets. Then those are then sold um, to the grain traders or processed. So for example, the soybeans are then processed into the soybean meal and separated out in the oil. That soybean meal would be a main source of protein in the animal diets. Um, and then that would then get sold to feed producers. So what I'm shape- setting up for you is there's quite a few different players um, or industries involved throughout this chain. And then the feed companies would then be providing that feed to the animal protein providers or the animal protein producers uh, for the most part. In some cases, in some highly consolidated companies, they may have their own feed mill where they're procuring the grain directly as well as um, it's not just the grain, but of course, minerals, vitamins, and feed additives that go in to make that healthy diet for the animals. And then of course, as we've already talked about a bit, is um, then once those animals uh, reach their their end weight, then they would be sold to the the packing companies and where they would be harvested and then, then broken down into retail packaging. A great description of, of roughly the supply chain, but we as a firm HC have worked in the animal nutrition space for quite some time, the last decade. This is an enormous industry, right? The scale of this is enormous. And those vitamins, all of those other additives that go in, that's also another entire, some of that's a commodity market, some of that's a specialty chemical market. Can you just set us up with some sense of scale about how all that comes together to, to feed what is, you know, a, just an enormous industry? Well, it, it is. It's an enormous industry and it's growing because uh, the population continues to grow, you know, especially when you look at the population growth and the emergence of more middle class. And so that's one of the main drivers why there's so much growth in the industry. And so when you think about meat overall, you know, so you have the animals, you know, so you're starting with the genetics um, and then you would have the feed of the feed, about 70% of that cost is in the commodities, whether it's corn for an energy source or the soybean meal for the protein source. And then you would have the vitamins that would come in and other specialty feed additives. So it's yeah, quite, quite sophisticated relative to all the inputs that go into animal production. And then of course there's all in the animal health industry as well, that would be an important part of raising animals for, for protein. Yeah. And we sort of had this trend over the last few years of animal health businesses getting into animal nutrition and vice versa as those two things, you know, as, as, as what's going on in human health, right? Those two things are intimately linked. Yeah, for sure. Because in my mind, health is really a consequence of the nutrition. And so this intersection between nutrition and health is getting ever closer than it, than it ever has been. And does one company, just generally speaking, if you know, DSM and your various competitors, you're producing the full mix of all of those additives and vitamins, or is again, is that industry fragmented as well? So there, there are companies that produce 
amino acids. We are not one of them, but uh, there's a number of players that would produce synthetic amino acids with part of um, an important part of the diet to ensure that the animals are getting the protein that they need. DSM's history has largely been in the vitamins, and we've been adding more and more specialty feed additives as we continue to look at how we can influence the animal's health through nutrition. And so that uh, is an area that is growing and that is growing largely because there's been a shift in animal health away from antibiotics and some of the traditional health products from a pharmaceutical to more of getting health through nutrition. Yeah. And it's that amino acid section, which is the sort of the commodity end of these uh, of feed ad- or the animal nutrition piece. Right. And is uh, is and it, like commodities, it follows a, a boom bust cycle and and, you know, and so forth, which is probably a, a separate story, but a fascinating. Uh, indeed. And, and vitamins as well. Vitamins, you know, has a bit of a of a roller coaster. There's some volatility associated with that and due to a lot of the drivers behind manufacturing of those products where most of the companies are looking into the future is as animal producers look to more precision, they look to fine tune operations from a sustainability standpoint. They look at how they can increase their efficiency and overall health in the animal through nutrition. That's where a lot of the research and innovation is geared to where it's um, a sustainability standpoint or more precision in those animal diets. One question, it might sound a this might be a bizarre question, but how much of a difference does it make? I mean, getting that, you know, working on getting the ever better nutrition for livestock. I mean, how much does it accelerate growth or the quality of the meat? I mean, what's the goals here? Well, every morsel that the animal consumes has a cost with it. And producing animals and producing animal protein, you know, 70% of that cost is in the diet. And so it has a significant impact on a producer's overall profitability. So you want to be able to ensure that the diets provide the nutrients and provide everything that's needed for the animal to basically to grow and to thrive. And then we get to a harvest weight that has the least amount of extra ingredients. And so we're looking for how do you optimize the diets in a way that an animal can reach harvest weight most efficiently. And so with 70% of your cost of production tied up into the diet, it's a tremendous cost. And so the more that you can be more efficient with the animals in terms of putting things in the diet where, for example, a mycotoxin binder, uh, mycotoxins are an increasing issue because of climate change. And so as more as the more and more, you know, climate volatility, more hot weather, more periods of uh, rain, those conditions are conducive to mycotoxin growth. And so mycotoxin can have a pretty significant impact on the diet when they're, they're consumed in the grain. And so they cause the animals to be more inefficient. They can cause health issues. And so that is a cost. And so these are the kind of things that we're looking at. Okay, how can you ensure that you're influencing the overall productivity of the animal through health and nutrition? You mentioned the efficiency, and, and that is a big driver alongside actually sustainability because the animal husbandry industry consumes a lot of land and a producer of greenhouse gases and there is there's a lot of pressure from that direction as well right to make the industry more efficient and even as you know in our discussions 
be able to lower greenhouse gas emissions and so forth through nutrition. Yeah, so just to you know, be clear, so a lot of the, the land use obviously is in the crops that go into the animal diets. And so we are producing more crops than we ever have from in terms of productivity if you look at yields in corn and soybeans. But indeed, you're right that most of that land usage for those crops does go into animal diets. And so always, again, looking at, at efficiency and how you're turning and, and upcycling, upcycling protein from, from plants. Is, is critical. Efficiency and how we think about it from a sustainability standpoint, think about it more in terms of, okay, if we can ensure that every egg that gets laid by a laying hen is able to reach the consumer shelf or every animal that is born thrives and reaches harvest weight at you know, in a healthy way and a health and, you know, we don't have losses and early piglet death and things like that along the way. So all of that has a cost to the producer and has an impact on the environment, especially if they've consumed grains and then that's not a, a protein source in the end. So looking at emissions, for example, you know, the estimate is that the animal agriculture industry accounts for about 14% of the greenhouse gas emissions. So it is an area that has a lot of focus. And we actually at DSM have developed a product called Bovair, which reduces methane emissions from cattle. And so this is one of the areas that we're looking to, to reduce overall animal emissions, but it's not the only one because there are other things that you can do as well. And the things as simple as incorporating enzymes into the diets, because if you think of the ingredients that are in corn, for example, energy or in soybean meal from a protein source, not always are those ingredients bioavailable to the animal. So in some cases, you may have to incorporate an enzyme into the diet to ensure that it's broken apart and fully digested by the animal. So these, this is very sophisticated science um, in the overall nutrition in terms of thinking about how do you optimize diets. And it's also is, is relevant for us as well. I'm thinking of human nutrition as well. These are some of the ways though, as you can look at how can I improve productivity through lifetime performance of an animal, such as, you know, how can an, a sow remain in the breeding herd longer than she might otherwise? How can we reduce egg breakage? How can we ensure that there's more, more pigs per sow per year, or that we have less mortality in the production. So all of these things impact the overall sustainability footprint of the industry. It also strikes me as you're talking, you've, you've kind of also got this challenge that chemicals company around the world have where some of your product is a commodity and others of your product are these specialty chemicals that require roles that we've done for years that are very you know, technical sales roles, vets who are now going in to talk to big clients about applications for these nutritional products. I mean, it's no mean business to pull off to be able to actually combine those two together and get them sold in the right channels, right? <laughs> you know, I don't know if you can talk to that a minute. Yeah, well, one of the biggest challenges for the industry is that the average consumer is very far away from production, meaning how many generations has it been since your family has had to produce food on the farm, right? So, you know, it, it's very, very remote now in terms of people being close to animal production. And so there's less and less understanding 
of how food is actually produced. You know, go ask your your neighborhood kindergartner where does the food come from and what's the answer going to be? Well, it, it comes from the grocery store, right? <laughs> but then, okay, where does the grocery store get the food? I don't know. It's just in the grocery store. And so just the understanding of food production and agricultural systems is very, very limited these days. And I think that's one thing, one of the challenges in front of the industry. Also, what that translates to is there's fewer and fewer people that are going into these areas. Uh, and in you know sometimes some of the most sought after positions for people looking for talent and maybe you know this with hc insider is that you know we're looking for people with a lot of poultry expertise poultry veterinarians in particular are one of the most sought after degrees that uh, we are looking for to help support and help with research and understanding of how we can continue to be more advanced and innovative as we we're looking at overall efficiency and the other thing to say is a lot of those positions are in country, right? So actually, you know, we've done heads of technical sales for poultry, you know, with exactly that background you're looking for in across Latin America and incredibly hard to find. And as you say, like, this is a challenge that the commodity industry faces more broadly, right? Is the, as people get further away from sort of the, you know, how these things are produced, and then you've got all of the, and, and there's some similarities between the oil industry, right? There's a lot of misperception out there in the public, a lot of, you know, it's, you know, a lot of easy bashing, dare I say, at various industries that you aren't able to attract young talent, let alone, you know, to get these people into the, into the industry. Yeah, indeed. There's so much misinformation out there. And, and we've been saying for a long time in the industry that how important it is to tell our story. And I think we, we don't always do a good job of that and taking the opportunity, there's much more of an initiative to do so. But educating efforts, you know, are really, really important for the industry, you know, because it's it's important to understand where food is grown, how food is grown, and there's so much misinformation out there. And and animal protein is is widely recognized as an important source of, of, of protein and health for yeah. for humans. And so being able to do it in a way that is sustainable and is right for the animals as well is very important and emblematic of that before we move on to the i guess the meat of the show gosh um 20 minutes in <laughs> is is a bad pun is, is no is you know if you're if you're at least in the us if you go and buy chicken in the supermarket on that packet says no hormones added ever and you know you think oh you're buying some you know decent chicken or whatever it might be but the point is hormones aren't used in the poultry industry right at least i was told by someone at a dinner once and and it's just a classic case of a combination of misinformation and then you know sort of having to address these these public concerns the things that that actually aren't real in the in the first place yeah there's a lot of information right now that you can find on the food packaging within the grocery store shelves not only on meat but everything else and it's got to be so overwhelming and confusing for consumers you know at the end of the day there's a consumer desire for more information and there's concern and a fear and and you know marketing is trying to address the the needs but you know often they're not uh, they're not part of reality as it relates to, um, in this example, your hormones in chickens, because there are no hormones fed to chickens. And so um, it's just, uh, it's an area where, again, a lot of distance between consumers today and their understanding of actual animal protein production. It's interesting, because, you know, that 
that can be construed as marketing, but it's necessary marketing to address what is a public concern, you know, that it's now become expected by the public because when you don't have no hormones added on your organic chicken, they're going to start to worry. So it's, it's a bit of a vicious cycle there. Yeah, indeed. And I think this is one of the challenges the industry will have going forward is there's more and more demands and regulatory constraints imposed upon the industry from consumers or regulatory bodies, and it's not necessarily grounded in science. Right. Okay. So the reason why we are all becoming more aware of meat, and and as President Joe Biden said the other day, Americans are getting used to the phrase supply chains, is of course, since the pandemic, we've had what effectively is becoming a global energy crisis, which is translating into food. And you mentioned earlier that 70% of the cost of the meat comes from the nutrition and 70% of the cost of that comes from the grains uh, and soybean meal that go into it. Can you just, you know, what is going on right now? We are seeing inflation in prices. Have I I identified the right cause of that? And, And what do you see as a result? I mean, how are markets responding? Is demand still increasing? We do see demand still increasing. But if you look at it from a global perspective, it's shifting quite a bit. So we see meat consumption declining in the West, but it's increasing everywhere else, especially in Asia and the Middle East as the per capita wealth increases or you get more of that middle class growing. But what's happening right now, you know, is really you know, volatility, you know, in one word, volatility. But we, we've been talking about it in terms of a couple of C's or three to five C's, depending, um, and those C's being climate, conflict, of course, with what's going on with uh, the Ukraine, currencies, and of course, COVID impacting consumption. It's a very unprecedented time for the industry because there's so many of these variables that are affecting the industry. And disease has also been relevant as well because we've had African swine fever in China that has reduced dramatically the number of sows. And so the, the country has rebuilt the sow herd in the last two years. And then, of course, avian influenza is also an issue uh, impacting producers on a number of different continents as well. And so that keeps mm. bird supplies down as well. But the the, the trade wars and the, the geopolitical tension is a, is a big one, especially considering how much grain comes out of Russia and the, and the Ukraine. And so that's that's shifting, a lot, you know, it's also causing a lot of the producers to think about alternatives. So are there other alternative grains that I can use and thinking about how to minimize the risk? Parking disease and, and I guess politics and geopolitics, which are all the other two big categories I want to cover, staying on just the price side alone. I mean, we've had 10 years, dare I say it, or at least eight years of low stable prices in grains, much to the chagrin of a number of trading houses. But have all of these large meat producers, they haven't been hedging or they've just gotten comfortable and used to the fact that actually you've got, you've had these low prices. And the same thing is going on, I think, industry worldwide where various industries have kind of forgotten the volatility in their commodity feedstocks, plastics, whatever it might be. Are they just passing those costs on to consumers? Are some of them hedged? Do you have any sense of kind of how how painful it is right now for the meat sector? Oh, it's super painful. It it is super painful. A few months ago, we were looking at the break-evens from swine production, and really there was only one part in the world that looked like it was actually making money. 
China, for example, has been a bit of a perfect storm because they had increased because of African swine fever, their sow herd to have more pork production, more pork available on the market. When they encountered that disease, their broiler industry had expanded. So then there was more chicken meat on the market. And then with COVID and the lockdowns, now all of a sudden there was a glut of protein on the market, consumers unable to, to buy it and to consume it for a lot of the issues associated with COVID. Then you had swine producers completely losing money every single month. And so it's it's been a very, very tough period of time, especially in swine. And what we see is that if you take the U.S., for example, the, the costs have gone up. Certainly for the consumer, you're probably facing that when you walk into the local grocery store and, and look into the meat counter. But it does seem like there's a lagging effect by the time that it actually trickles back to the producer. So it's a very, very tough time. And so margins are squeezed unbelievably. So producers are making difficult choices, many of them cutting out feed additives, some of them even reducing vitamin levels, which is is you know, de- definitely not the most optimum thing to do from a productivity standpoint. But in some cases, it's been very, very difficult for them to stay in business. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It's quite an inelastic business you know, market as well, right? People are still consuming meat, irrespective of these quite significant price rises. They are, but they will switch. So the industry that will suffer the most will be the beef cattle industry. So you may, instead of choosing that ribeye steak for dinner, it may be chicken breasts or, or chicken wings or, you know, you may be downgrading or, or eggs. And so what we'll see is that chickens will typically be the winner when there's more pressure on consumers. Um, and their ability to spend. And so that's that. So you see that shifting amongst the protein sources. Egg consumption tends to increase during times of inflation. So this is probably one of the most resilient markets, but it's also, I would say, you know, one of the best available sources of protein. They're one of the healthiest things that, that you could eat as well. So we do expect the egg market to continue to increase modestly going forward. But uh, again, it's uh, it becomes a shift amongst the spe- uh, amongst the proteins. This is probably going to be a long-term trend, right? I mean, the expectation with, and I do like those five Cs, you know, the conflict's not ending anytime soon. We've still got sort of the, all of the challenges over COVID and disruption to supply chains going on. I mean, the, all of those, those five are still in, vol- you know, in a volatile state. So, you know, the expectation is, and, and you know, and I, You've also got other com- competition for that those grains as well in the form of uh, fuels, which is, again, a very different debate uh, or a thorny one. But it doesn't seem like food prices are going to be going down anytime soon with the suite of causes behind it still present and in some cases escalating. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I wouldn't expect food prices and especially meat prices to come down. I think that there will be, again, like, like I said, a shifting amongst the species. And so it's very cyclical, especially cattle numbers. And so maybe there'll be a, a reduction in cattle herd sizes as well. And so, you know, we also, I think we see the trends to re overall reducing meat consumption in the West. So that trend may accelerate a bit more, maybe not by choice, but because of economic pressures. So yeah, I think uh, th this trend is here to stay. It'd be interesting to get your take. There's one thing that hasn't seemed to take off like all of the expectations in the pandemic, at least, around alternative proteins. The, the, the meat industry is quite resilient and people are continuing to choose and prefer that over alternative proteins, at least to date. Alternative proteins have been growing double digit for a number of years until last year where they slowed down. I'm certain that costs are a factor in this. Alternative meats are more expensive than, than animal protein and consumers are super cost conscious right now. Certainly there's another trend that's coming up as well as sometimes these are also ultra processed. So we'll have to wait and see about how things look longer term. At the end of the day, there's a big demand for protein consumption and for proteins globally, and that demand will remain strong. So I'm pretty confident that these markets will co be able to nicely coexist. People want choice, and I think the demand for protein will remain strong. However, there's a lot of research and a lot of innovation still ongoing looking at alternative protein for animal diets. Alternative protein being in the form of single cell protein, proteins produced from bacteria or from yeast or fungi, or even insects. And so those are still two areas that I think are quite hot and that could have an influence in the future in animal diets. Also, again, in the news recently with, I think there's a massive cull going on in the UK over bird flu, is, is, is disease. And there's a couple of factors here that are making that much more critical, right? One is obviously the concentration within the industry, the scale of the industry means that um, any local outbreaks are much harder to control. And you saw that you've mentioned a couple of times the African swine fever in China where, and I'd like you to get some, you, you to give us some sense of scale on that because it was just tremendous impact on the industry there. Um, and the other, of course, is, is climate change where pathogens are um, more easily spread in warming environments. You know, they've got a bigger geographical range, whatever it might be. So disease is obviously profoundly impacting on this sector and can have disastrous consequences. Can you just give us some sense of scale and, and what we're talking about here? Yeah, well, let's start with the African swine fever one. And so that is such a, a devastating disease. And in China, when they had their outbreak of African swine fever, they reduced their population by 45% of the sows. And so it was absolutely devastating. And so... So this is something that is very, very concerning for the industry overall. And and U.S. is on high alert to ensure that that African swine fever doesn't reach the U.S. borders. But you know, I think a lot of people will say it's just a matter of time. It's not. It's not if. It's when. And you have things that like feral pigs that also make it difficult to control as well. So in Germany, there's some outbreaks of that and, and they attribute some of that to, to feral pigs. Um, and so being able to invest in health 
resilience is certainly very important, but, but something like African swine fever, the best way to control that is, is culling of the herds. From an avian influenza standpoint, they do the same thing, you know, looking at, at culling sick affected barns and affected complexes. Again, wild birds, the native birds of the area are also uh, very difficult to control, obviously. And so that makes it even more challenging. One of the things that we see driving, you know, or we think, you know, could be a contributing is that, you know, there's been antibiotic resistance, you know, that has has come up. And so one of the, the big legislative initiative in Europe uh, is that, you know, we no longer allow the use of antibiotics for growth promotion in animals. You know, obviously if an animal is, is sick, you know, then they're still treated, but looking at alternatives to antibiotics has been a huge driver, both from a legislative as well as a consumer standpoint. And this is, this is leading to a lot of opportunities to see, okay, again, how do we come back to influencing health through nutrition? So this is, you know, a, an area of, of huge, huge importance from a research standpoint, from a product standpoint, but looking at biosecurity overall is one of the probably top issues and something that's front of mind for most of the producers in, in the U.S., for example, is just ensuring that their biosecurity protocols are followed and are strict enough to manage and to mitigate any disease. Well, I also mentioned there, obviously, climate change. Is that having an impact on disease load, disease spread? disease at where, where these diseases are endemic? I believe climate change is having a big impact on animal production. Probably the most obvious area is in heat stress. It's maybe a bit more subtle, uh, but heat stress is an, a big impact, uh, you know, in terms of animals being able to deal with the heat. You know, you may have a lot of temperature volatility as well. So a lot of temperature swings. So it could be super hot one day and then two days later, it's, you know, had a rapid drop in temperature. And so I think that that also has an impact on animals. And I think us as well, um, but, but heat stress is where we see perhaps, you know, the most urgent impact on the animals. And then mycotoxins, I mentioned, that's something that we see more and more evidence of in the crop because of some of the volatility and in, in the weather patterns, those mycotoxins can do everything from just, you know, overall reduce your efficiency of processing the the feed to causing to causing piglet mortality to having an impact on the gestation of animals as well. So it, it can have a wide ranging impact. Mycotoxins that can be fatal to horses as well. So it, there's there's a lot of different mycotoxins, more than 400. They can have different effects reduce overall fertility. And so this is something that's in the grains and that we see increasing. And so but heat stress in the near term is probably the biggest concern as real climate change. The final area of real challenge, and I think we're setting up a picture that it is a, a tough time for the meat industry, is is obviously politics and geopolitics, that conflict and just the deep or at least a pause in globalization, arguably deglobalization that's going on. And of course, meat, which is so central to societal health and so forth, is front and center in some of those trade disputes that have, you know, or outright protectionist regimes or whatever it might be. So it's, it, it's, that is also a very challenging route to navigate for meat producers and obviously, of course, the, the suppliers and the animal nutrition world that goes into that. One of the challenges 
that is very difficult for the industry is that there's a lot of pressure coming from both governments, but also consumers. And as we talked about earlier, not necessarily informed consumers. And so, you know, figuring out what are the right mandates to put on the industry that makes sense for, for the animals is, you know, sometimes they're, they're a bit at odds, but, but certainly the, the regulations are, are impacting many producers in different countries. So I think there's a couple that would be you know, useful to keep an eye on. For example, in the Netherlands, you know, they're not allowing dairymen to expand their herds. In fact, they're paying for some farmers to go out of business, to stop producing. And because they're trying to reduce the impact that they believe is coming from agriculture. Um, but this is gonna have an impact around the total food available within the country. And so then there's also more and more pressure around scope three emissions. Okay, what are scope three emissions? And this would be from a retailer perspective, retailers will measure scope three emissions, which are those emissions that result of activities from their suppliers. So in this case, the packing plants, who's then their suppliers, of course, would be the farmers or, or you know, the dairy processor. And so there's just a lot more initiatives that uh, are going to be impacting the industry. Uh, in some ways, in some places, there's also positive incentives. So like fast food chains like McDonald's and Burger King are, are setting emission targets you know, throughout their, their value chain. And we're thinking and then we're seeing that there is some incentives in places for people for producers who can produce pork, for example, with a lower carbon footprint. All of these are driving up costs, including obviously competition for those grains with the fuel industry, with biodiesel and renewable diesel and ethanol and so forth. It must be very challenging to navigate. And, and actually, one wonders as the if we see continued inflation, continued rising in prices for food, there's only so you know you can't downshift from uh, from chickens that easily. You know whether actually there will be the continued pressure to tackle sustainability as well. Yeah, I I hope that it remains central to animal producers' agendas, and I believe it is because having an eye on sustainability means also ensuring that there's reduced waste or we're improving overall performance of, of animals and ensuring that we're getting the most out of the meat, milk and egg production. And, and I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of requirements from in the investment community as well. So for publicly traded companies, there's obligations and there's a number of, of investor network, for example, like the FAIR initiative that monitors ESG, the environmental, social, and government's risk in the animal ag sector. And they're calling out companies that are doing well and, and companies that are not. The, the biggest challenge in the industry, though, is that there's not a consistent metric on how to measure sustainability footprint. And this is, you know, if you're a farmer and you've got a, a number of cows or pigs or chickens, whatever it is, you know, how do you measure your sustainability farm print? And this is going to be very important because, you know, it, it can be very inconsistent from one farm to the next. And so having a very consistent science-based way to measure 
what really, really is the sustainability farm print is super important. It's an area that we branched into and started investing in and came up with a tool called Sustel to utilize to actually measure it in a science-based way. Um, because this is a need that we saw coming because there's just, there's so much impact. But again, how do you measure and how do you get a consistent measurement from one industry to the another, whether it's from dairy or to, to poultry? And then how do you make sure that it's science-based? Yeah, no, and, and that is, I think that's a really crucial point. And then actually you can start layering in those incentives, whether it's cheaper financing or it's carbon credits or whatever it is that actually rewards those farmers and makes it economically viable to to push for sustainability, right? And I think that there's a lot of rhetoric, but there isn't actually the tools and the standardization there yet to really push these goals. I think that's a very good point. Sort of putting the, the, the future hat on for a moment as we wrap up. You've mentioned some trends there, talking about alternative proteins into feeds and so forth, and this coupling of nutrition and health. What what do you think are the major trends that you're looking at over the next decade, aside perhaps I, th- I think from sustainability, that you know is you see on the horizon for the industry? Yeah, sustainability, as you mentioned, is going to be front and center for sure, and and being able to to measure that. Another area that I think is super important is around precision and precision farming and understanding how to be even more sophisticated and more precise in the production of animal protein, whether that's from a health perspective, whether it's from a nutrition perspective, being able to measure and, and maybe even customize feeding at some point. So the, the area of precision is an area that uh, a lot of people are spending time looking at how to do individual animal management, how to Mm. understand and track when an animal, when you know immediately if an animal's not feeling well, then you can can make an intervention earlier in the process. And so precision is something that I think will be very interesting area to keep an eye on. That's that's something I think has a lot of opportunity across the board, um, whether it's from a health perspective, genetics, it's just overall animal management and the opportunity to to improve profitability overall. So it's a precision. Uh, the precision space is super cool, and there's so many different technologies that are being tested on the market now. Whether it's a wearable for an animal um, or a tracking device, like the, all sorts of uh, sorts of things. Um, but figuring out how to take that data and utilize it uh, will be a challenge for a producer. So, you know, data won't be the problem, but getting the insights from the data will be much more of a challenge. Yeah. The other area that I think is, is super cool and I'm personally very fascinated with it is this continuing focus on the microbiome. We now think of the microbiome, which is this collection of bugs that are living essentially in the GI tract of, of humans, animals. Uh, we, we think of the microbiome has a newly discovered organ in the animal. And a lot of the research it's not, it is focused on this interaction between how can you influence the microbiome? So it influences the animal in the way that is positive. So looking at how you can influence this microbiome and the metabolites that the bacteria in the gut produce and then communicate with the body that can influence the animal's health or resilience or behavior, whether it's 
you know, lean muscle accretion, less uh, aggressive sow behavior, reproductive performance. It's fascinating how many different things we believe we can influence through the microbiome. So it's probably mm. uh, something to, to consider um, in the future as a, as a whole nother podcast, because there's so much happening in the space of microbiome. Yeah, I was gonna say, because we've done a lot of work in you know, the probiotic space and so forth. And it seems like almost in some sense, the animal nutrition world is leading the human nutrition world in the understanding of, of the overall body effects and, and actually how chemistries and behaviors and everything can change quite quickly as a result of altering that microbiome. Yeah, indeed, because you, you can do so much research and you can, with pigs and with, with chickens, for example, versus, you know, humans, you can just do, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of data points and, and actually get, you know, real microbiome information collection. And so understanding how you can influence that. So I, I do think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, the animal world is probably leading on it from a human standpoint. And I think it's, it's, it's super cool. There's so much to do with it. Again, it's like, okay, you have all the data. We're trying to screen for different compounds and how the microbiome can be influenced and what does that do? But again, it's okay. We have a lot of data now. What are the insights that come out of it and how do we actually use those in our decision-making process? I've really enjoyed the discussion. There's so, so many more questions I have and topics I want to dive into, but really appreciate your time. And, you know, hopefully we can have you on again in the future and, and see where the, the industry is. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this awesome industry with you. Great stuff. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.